from halfway through 2010 to halfway through 2011, my family and I lived back in the U.S. so that I could finish seminary. And during that time, we attended a church that is pastored by my brother-in-law, Stuart Ruck. Some of you may remember him. He has preached here at Calvary before. And there was a man at that church that I would pass from time to time. We were friendly and would, would greet each other as we passed, uh, but I never knew his name. He seemed kind, down to earth. I had seen him with his wife and three children, and they seemed like a happy family. Now, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but as I think about it, this is how I think it happened. Because at the time, although I had never met this man, I knew that a U.S. member of Congress attended the same church that we were attending. One Sunday morning, I walked past this man that I recognized but did not know, and I greeted him, and I smiled, and I continued on my way. And then someone whispered to me that I was with, do you know who that is? That is blank, <laughs> the, the member of Congress. And, uh, and it was a, kind of a shock to me. I was like, wait, 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 wait. So that man is also that man? I had no idea. I knew this guy, and I knew of this guy over here, but I had never put the two together. Last week, we tuned in to Acts chapter 2 to hear the beginning of Peter's Pentecost message in which he sets the scene to introduce his hearers to Jesus. The introduction with Joel's prophetic words that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how it ends. That introduction ends with, with pointing to this name for salvation. And now Peter is going to introduce people to that name. Peter's in Jerusalem, and he's speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. The majority of these people would have been aware of the man, Jesus, who had caused quite an uproar in the country and in their city over the, the past three years, but even within Jerusalem over the last week. They would have been aware that, I'm sorry, the last week of before his crucifixion, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm getting my timelines confused here. These people, the audience, would have been aware that this man, Jesus, did perform miracles and that he had been crucified, that that was the way that his life ended. Now, these Jews listening would also have known of this prophetic figure called the Messiah. Jewish prophecy had predicted the coming of this Christ, this Savior, who would come from the same line as King David and who would rule on King David's throne. And the Jewish nation had assumed, had understood for generations that this Messiah would be a political leader, a religious leader as well, but a political figure a warrior who would expulse foreign invaders from their territory and would reestablish Israel as a nation, an earthly nation of power and might, wealth and beauty. So they knew Jesus and they knew about the Messiah. And the astonishing nature of what Peter has to say to them on this Pentecost day is that the Jesus of whom they had heard and the Messiah who they were desperately awaiting were one in the same person. And the fact 
the historical event that binds those two together is the resurrection. This morning, before we we go any further, I want to read the rest of Peter's sermon. We'll begin with Acts chapter 2, verse 21, so that we'll get the last verse of that introduction and then move into the body of Peter's teaching. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But... He was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he, would want, that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he would this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, I want you to listen as we walk through this sermon together. Listen as though Peter were speaking this truth to you because he was. By the Holy Spirit, he was speaking this truth, telling this story, relating this account for all generations that were to come. Because Scripture says about Jesus that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So the only hope for salvation, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means later, the only hope for salvation is in the name and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
On the other hand, if you are already a believer, if you already are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, there's going to be some applications from this sermon for you as well. So don't tune out thinking you already know all this. The first point that Peter makes is addressing Jesus' credentials. He wastes no time in bringing the name of Jesus to the forefront, right? Fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth. There it is. Right away, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. So if you've ever had someone introduce you to someone else or write a letter of introduction, well, does anyone ever write letters of introduction? Probably not. An email of introduction, perhaps, or a WhatsApp of introduction saying, uh, hey, this so-and-so, this is so-and-so, and and it, it gives you a context, right? They give you a context. This is the person who does so-and-so and, this, and, and participates in such and such, and that's why I want you to know him or her. Jesus, his, his letter of, of presentation, of introduction, were the signs and miracles and wonders that God did through him. Those were his credentials. The text says that he was a man accredited by God to the people by miracles, wonders, and signs. And this statement affirms what I said earlier, that Jesus and his miracles were known to the general population of Israel at the time. While not everyone perhaps had witnessed them firsthand, they had heard about them. And he ends the sentence by saying, as you yourselves know. So Jesus was familiar to this particular group of people. And people's, uh, sorry, Peter is stating that the miracles Jesus performed are evidence that he came from God. They're his divine credentials. He healed the sick. He walked on water. He calmed storms, multiplied food, made the blind see, and even raised dead people to life again. And the the not-so-thinly-veiled question that Peter sticks to his listeners is, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you follow him? What more could you ask for to testify that someone has come from God? How could you choose to ignore or explain away what he did? So Christ is accredited by God to the people through signs and wonders. The second point that Peter addresses in his sermon is God's sovereignty. Jesus was handed over to crucifixion by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Do you see that in the text? So God is fully in control of salvation. He's the initiator. He's not the reactor. According to Scripture, God did not simply take something terrible, the crucifixion and death of Jesus, and then make something beautiful out of it. Maybe you've heard the expression, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. That's not accurate when it comes to God because God's never surprised by lemons. He doesn't open his grocery bag and say, oh, I wanted oranges, but these are lemons. But since I've got lemons, okay, I'm going to make lemonade. No, God intends lemonade from the beginning. Lemonade is his plan. Therefore, the lemons don't take him by surprise. The atoning death of Jesus, his crucifixion in the place of humanity was the loving plan of God from the foundation of the world. And without this clarity, there's no gospel. 
without the truth of the aware, self-sacrificing love of God is diminished, if not completely dispelled. If the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, did not will together the death of Jesus, then he did not will salvation. Maybe a way we can think about this is, is imagine that uh, someone is in need of a kidney. And uh, without my knowledge, now I'm not aware of the situation, but someone comes up behind me with a wooden club, conks me over the head, knocks me out, drags me to the hospital, into the operating room. They take one of my kidneys, give it to the other person. And when I wake up, they say to me, what an incredible sacrifice. You are such an amazing person. You are so generous with your own body. You gave up your kidney for the other person. You know what? Me giving up that kidney, there's no virtue in that because I had no choice in the matter. It wasn't my plan. It wasn't my intent. Someone did it to me. So I, that cannot be considered an act of love on my part. And the, the, the connection I want to make here is that if God did not intentionally will the death, the atoning death of Jesus, then it was not an act of love. It was not an act of salvation. God willed it. And Peter is clear on this point. It was the sovereign will of God that led Jesus to the cross. Now we come to the third point, which is the responsibility of humanity. Because the reasoning goes like this, right? Well, if God willed it, then huh, it's not my fault. If God is sovereign over everything, then I'm not responsible for what I do wrong because it's all under the sovereignty of God. That's the natural human argument, right? But Peter immediately debunks that argument. Why? Because he says, this was all according to God's plan and foreknowledge. And then the very next phrase is, but you. <laughs> and he says it to all the people there. I can only imagine, maybe Peter had really long fingers. I always imagine pe Peter having really long index fingers when he was preaching. I don't know why. And he's like, but you. Maybe it's because Billy Graham had those really long index fingers and he'd say, you must be born again. Anyway, Peter looks at the congregation and he says, but you but you, God willed it, but you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. I want to just briefly address that word wicked. In Greek, that word is anomos, which comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law. And so what the word literally means is without law. Uh, maybe we could say lawless. But in this context, and actually in a number of other New Testament contexts, when that word is used, what is actually referring to is Gentiles. Meaning the Jews are with the law. They were given the law of Moses. So they are the people of the law. The Gentiles are anomos, without law. They were not given the law. And I believe that's true of this context here because Peter is making a universal declaration of guilt regarding Christ's crucifixion. So you, Jews, people of the law, with the help of 
those without the law, Gentiles, put him to death. Because the Jewish people were the ones who brought him to the Roman authorities, the Gentile authorities, and the Gentile authorities, Pilate, you know, handed him over to be crucified, and the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, actually carried that out. The point is what? Everyone bears responsibility for the death of Jesus. No one is innocent of his blood. All people, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, we're all guilty of the death of Christ. We carry responsibility. Why? Why, are, why were, are we who are alive today, why do we still bear responsibility? Because we're sinners. And it was because of the sin of humanity that Jesus died. That's why it was necessary. If there had been no sin ever, the death of Christ would not have been required. No sacrifice would have been necessary to pay for that sin. So everyone who has ever sinned is guilty of the blood of Jesus, guilty of his crucifixion. We bear that guilt as a member of humanity. And it doesn't matter, this is really important, it doesn't matter if we say that, well, I may be a sinner, I may sin, but I've done more good things than I have bad things. That's another common argument, right? Well, yeah, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than I'm worse. <laughs> I've done more good than, than evil. But the whole concept of evil is that any amount is too much. Any amount destroys it. All those people present that day listening to Peter were responsible for Christ's death. And all of us, all of you who are listening or watching this morning, are likewise responsible for Christ's death. God's sovereignty and his will does not negate human responsibility. So Peter begins with Christ's credentials. He moves to the sovereignty of God. He follows that with the responsibility of humanity. And then he gets to God's, maybe God's glorious plan, if we want to call it that. And this point is the crux. It's the turning point. It's the one shocking, amazing fact that joins the Jesus that these people were familiar with to the Messiah that they had never known, the resurrection. If you look at the actual text on the page, you'll see that Peter devotes more time to the resurrection than to any other point in his sermon. From verses 24 through 35, in one way or another, he's addressing the resurrection. And of course, this makes sense, because if the resurrection of Jesus did not actually happen, then there is no Christianity. There's no redemption, there's no hope, and there's no reason for us to continue to pretend that following him means anything. The Roman Empire crucified thousands of people, perhaps 10,000s of people, tens of thousands of people, perhaps hundreds, I don't know how many. And of all those crucified or executed by other means, only one rose from that death, only one. God raised Jesus from the dead, and as the text says, because it was impossible for him to stay dead. Death is the result 
of sin. And Jesus was sinless. And death couldn't hold him. This is the plan of God. God's sovereignty did not only ordain the death of Jesus. If it had ended there, Jesus would only have been a tragic figure and God would have been a vengeful God. To support this truth, Peter draws on Old Testament prophecy, uh, specifically from the Psalms. And this prophecy, he's relating it because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. It wouldn't have the same impact to a Gentile audience at the time. King David wrote the words that Peter quotes, and they refer to the coming Messiah. They're prophetic uh, that he, the Messiah, would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead and that God would not allow the Messiah to see decay. And if you read it at first glance, it would seem that David was talking about himself. But Peter dispels that error. Friends, he says, David died, and his tomb is here to this day. And in in ancient um, Jerusalem, At this time in history, there was a big monument at the tomb of of David. It was on the hill called the City of Zion, which was the original um, city of Jerusalem. And I can imagine Peter, as he preaches this, it's close to the Temple Mount, if he was near the temple. You know, he just motions over and says, look, we know that the patriarch David is dead. He's right over there, you know. See that monument? David's right over there. So this can't possibly be referring to him. I want you to imagine Peter speaking to the crowd while behind Peter, behind him, are arrayed the the 11 other apostles and then the other 120 disciples who had been in in that room. And they're they're all standing there together. Peter's perhaps a little in front of them and he's speaking to the crowd. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. So remember those people behind him. Imagine Peter saying this. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Do you understand how Peter is using the word witnesses? He's using it in, his, in its true meaning. A witness is someone who is personally present and sees, hears, or experiences something. And all these disciples experienced the resurrection, meaning that they saw the risen Jesus. They listened to him. They spoke with him. They touched him. They ate with him. They traveled with him. And they did that before he died. They witnessed his death on the cross, and then they saw him alive afterwards. And their responsibility now as witnesses was simply to share what they had experienced, what they knew to be true. Now, we've seen this theme already just in the first two chapters of Acts, the theme of witness. Witness empowered by the Holy Spirit. Witness, witness, witness. And so, at, at its very core, what it means to be a witness is to have experienced something and then speak what you have experienced. Share that. We'll get to that more at the end of of this sermon, of this talk. Following his resurrection, Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. He's on the seat of power in heaven, exercising the sovereignty and power of God because he is God. Peter says that the Father gave the Holy Spirit to Jesus and Jesus then poured out his spirit on the church and that everything that was happening that day, up to and including Peter's 
speech and what happens after Peter's sermon was due to the presence and activity of God, the Holy Spirit, who the Father and the Son had poured out on the church. So now we get to the final declaration in Peter's sermon. In verse 36, the statement that unifies clearly and directly and specifically for the first time the Jesus they knew with the Messiah they didn't is this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. Lord meaning he is God and sovereign. Messiah meaning he is the anointed one who was sent, who came to save his people from their sins. There it is. There is the union of the Jesus they were familiar with, the good guy, the nice man who healed people and did miracles, and the Jesus who was the promised Messiah, the Savior, God himself. And the result, we can see that that unification, that union in the people's minds were, had carried great conviction. It, the Holy Spirit has revealed to them that they participated in killing their greatest hope. They participated in killing the Messiah. Jesus, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ. Christ is the English translation of the word Messiah. The result is powerful. People were cut to the heart. That's how the text reads. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And so they asked Peter, what shall we do? How does Peter respond? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's the first step? Repent. That's not a real happy word. It's not a popular word. I don't hear of people, let's get together and have repentance parties. You know, let's, uh, I can't wait to repent. I just can't wait. I look forward to it every day. Uh, repentance is not a popular word. And yet, if anyone is to come to Christ, if anyone is to be saved, they must repent. Those of us who are already witnesses of Jesus' resurrection and his life in us by his spirit, this is, this is a word that we often try to avoid when we are sharing Jesus with others. We shy away from it. We don't want to scare others off. We don't want to offend them. And yet, no one can be accepted by Jesus unless they repent. Why? Because if a person cannot or will not acknowledge the, their sin, they don't realize that they need a Savior. Jesus didn't come to earth to make us feel better. He came to earth to save us from eternal destruction and separation from God. But if we don't acknowledge that we need that, we won't go to him for it. Uh, a year ago, March, I had surgery for an uh, umbilical hernia. And uh, <clears throat> it, it, it had, uh, I had been aware of this hernia for years. And I just kind of tried to ignore it. And I don't mean to be too crass, but... Uh, I had heard that as long as you could push a hernia back in, you didn't really need to do anything about it. So I could keep pushing it back in. I found myself more and more 
like living life with my hand like this, holding that hernia in. When I finally went to the doctor, so when I finally admitted my need for a savior, when I finally admitted my need for surgery, um, I went into the doctor's office, I explained the situation, and he said, hey, let, well, let's take a look at it. And so um, his literal words were, um, but anyway, I, I, I lifted up my shirt and he said, okay, so when are we going to surgery? He didn't examine me. He didn't uh, ask any questions. It was so obvious, glaringly obvious what I needed that he didn't even need to, to have, do anything else. But the point is, if, until I was willing to admit and until I was ready to admit my need, Nothing was going to be taken care of. And that's where the repentance comes in for a human being. Until we are willing to admit our need for a Savior because of our sin, until we are willing to admit that we are sinners and that we are incapable of perfection on our own power, we will not come to Jesus that's why Peter's first response to the crowds were, repent. Repent. Because an act of contrition, the act of repentance, acknowledges our need for a Savior. And when we acknowledge our need for a Savior, that leads us to Jesus Christ, who receives us and saves us. If you have not yet accepted that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, that he is God, that his death was real, and that his resurrection is true. But you want to? You're ready to take that step? Then the first decision you make is to acknowledge that you too are responsible for his death. That your sin nailed him to the cross. And take that step of repentance in coming to him. And Peter says that, that this promise through repentance and then baptism, we'll be talking about that more next week, in coming to Christ, that that promise is for all who are far off. And maybe that relates to you. Maybe you are far off or you think you're far off, but nonetheless, the Holy Spirit is calling you today, don't wait to repent. Don't say, well, I'm going to think about it. Don't say, well, I'm not quite, you know, if you're under conviction right now, this is the time to come to Christ, to repent of your sins, to accept his death in your place so that you will not be subject to eternal separation from God. And the gift that Christ gives is eternal life. So today is the day. Today is the day. Now, I want to address those of you here at the end. You are witnesses of the resurrection and the transformation that Christ brings. But perhaps many of us are a little confused about what exactly that means. We think we need maybe to be able to debate. We think that we need to have clever arguments and philosophical understanding in order to share the gospel. I'm not saying that those things might not be helpful, but they are not a requirement to be a witness. 
because you are a witness of these truths. In other words, you are witnesses of the resurrection because if you have repented of your sins and surrendered to Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You have experienced new life in Jesus. And to be a witness for Christ is to share what he has done in you and for you. To share your experience of the resurrection. And so anyone who belongs to Jesus has a witness story to share. You may think that your story is not super exciting. You know, you may think that, well, since I never killed anybody and I didn't go down deep into drugs and in my life I wasn't a gangster and then God had this amazing turnaround transformation of me, I don't have anything to share. Well, you know what? Most of the people with whom you come in contact with, they are not gangsters and they have not killed anybody and they have not um, been in the dark underworld of this, of this country or of this nation. So they're much more like you, perhaps, than not. And what they need to hear from a witness to the resurrection is how Jesus takes a person and upon their repentance he, and their acceptance of his death and sacrifice, he saves them he gives them his Holy Spirit who lives in them and they become a son or a daughter of God. That's what they need to hear. Don't be afraid of messing it up, of not having the right phrasing or of not convincing people that is the truth. We've talked about this before. It's not your responsibility to prove that God exists, that Jesus was real. It's your responsibility to witness it's the holy spirit's responsibility to convince and there i've there have been several times where i've received a call from someone in in uh in our community in our congregation uh, or a message and they're a little bit desperate and they're saying there's this person and 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 they want to know jesus can you talk to him and i've i've learned that what i say is no you talk to them. Because if you already have that relationship with them, you are a witness of the resurrection. God wants to use you. Tell your story. Now, after you've shared your story, after you've talked to them about Christ, if there are still some questions that you can't answer, then um, call the deacons. No, not really. You can, you can of course, talk, talk, talk to me. But the point is, you, as a witness of Christ, can do it. You can share how Christ has saved you and transformed your life. So that's one thing I want to address to those of you who already know Jesus. Now here's the other thing. It's kind of a balancing factor in a way. Much has been made of the fact that Peter and some of the other disciples were ignorant, uneducated fishermen, right? We like to have that image of them. Quite frankly, we don't know where that comes from because it's never stated in Scripture. We're never told that they were uneducated. We're never told that they were stupid. We're never told that they were rough. We do know that those in Jerusalem in that region looked down on them because they were from Galilee and the Galileans were kind of considered the hillbillies of the day. But even if Peter were uneducated, I want to draw your attention to the fact that he had a lot of Scripture memorized. And I know that that was part of the Jewish culture of the day. I know that Jewish sons in particular were taught 
the scriptures and they were taught, required to memorize them. So whether Peter was uneducated in other ways or not, he had scripture at his fingertips on the tip of his tongue and in his heart. And I know that the effect of this day was by the power of the Holy Spirit, but the power, it wasn't the Holy Spirit that magically put the words of scripture into Peter's mind. They were already there and the Holy Spirit was able to use them. So this is kind of a challenge or or a balance to the previous point I made about being witnesses. You can do it and do it. But at the same time, if we belong to Jesus, we need to be immersing ourselves in his word. Not only for our good, but once it's in us, once we have taken it in, it becomes a tool that the Holy Spirit uses to transform us, but then also to speak into others. So read it, know it, absorb it, learn it, and the Holy Spirit will use it. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And sometimes when we are talking about faith with other people or we're sharing about Jesus, we're hesitant to quote scripture or to speak scripture. Why? Well, we think they don't believe it. So if they don't believe it, there's no real need for me to say it. I have to find other arguments, other ways of addressing it. But that denies the objective power of the word of God. The power of the word of God does not depend upon me believing it, and it doesn't depend on anyone else believing it. It is powerful because it is the word of God. So when it is spoken, it is sharper than a double-edged sword. (laughs) Not just when it's spoken, when it's read. It itself. And it penetrates. So if we know Scripture and have taken it in, do not hesitate to use Scripture, to use the power of the word of God in witnessing to his reality and his truth.